0: If you have your Bibles, please take them now and turn with me to our sermon for this morning. And it's going to be in Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through 23, verse 12. Father, thank you so much for the song that reminds us of the cross. Uh, not that so much that it's old, not necessarily that it's rugged, but that it is a cross where Jesus died for our sins. God, we thank you for the reminder. Thank you, Lord, that uh, this the reality of that event is recorded for us in your word, in the Bible. Thank you, Lord, that we can look upon it, we can see it for ourselves, study it for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for our pastor today uh, where we study the trials of Jesus that led to the cross. Father, as we look to your word in these upcoming weeks, continually remind us of the, the, the value and the preciousness and the also yet the agony and the, the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf willingly, experiencing the shame, the suffering, the scorn, the, uh, the mockery for us for our transgressions. Lord, help us to end the light of that to, to love you more and to continue to, to lay aside uh, the, the sin that so easily entangles us, that we might live for you, that we might serve you, worship you, love you. these things we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Prophet Isaiah, which we read in our call to worship this morning, the, uh, the verses uh, where I ended, the, the next two verses are, uh, are continue in this way. And these are the word, the prophecy of Isaiah regarding the suffering servant. And it says he, he or he wrote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Isaiah wrote that 700 years before Jesus. 700 years passed between the recording of the prophecy of God and when Jesus of Nazareth was born and walked upon earth. And he was born and walked and ministered all throughout Galilee and then entered into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey to fulfill this prophecy. And in fulfillment of this prophecy, he is arrested. He is uh, led away that we looked at last week. And he is betrayed and denied by his, his own. and leads us to this place that we find in our text this morning where it leads to his, his trials that then are a preparation for his inevitable condemnation and crucifixion of on the cross. Yet we see according to Isaiah as well as we read in the scriptures and the gospels that Jesus in his trials does not open his mouth to defend himself. He does not uh, speak, you know, to say, I know I didn't do it. I'm innocent. You've got the wrong man. I am not that kind of person that you are accusing me of. He conducts himself instead as according to Isaiah, like a lamb led to slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears. Yes, he answers a few questions, but never does he demand justice. Never does he demand freedom. And even though he is oppressed and afflicted unjustly by his enemies, he does so to fulfill his Father's will and word. We shall see fleshed out in our passage today uh, this, how Jesus willingly endured these trials, these unjust trials. And as we observe Jesus' trials before the rulers of Israel, we shall see that they each evaluate each of these rulers, these judges, each evaluate Jesus according to their own own aims, their own purposes, their own desires. They're not really out to seek the truth, they're really out to seek what they want. They look in terms of Jesus what they want or don't want from him. And I find, as I reflect upon these passages, that their conduct of these rulers are a gentle. Warning, a gentle admonishment even to us who follow him, to us who follow Jesus, that we would be careful in how we judge and how we evaluate Jesus, how we look to Jesus. Not that we would ever look to Jesus according to our own aims and desires, but that we look to him according to God's desires, what God wants us to find in him. Our text that takes place here, that's described here, takes place on early Friday evening of the Passion Week. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, arrested by the religious leaders, denied by Peter, and mocked and abused by the guards. Jesus now records basically a series of, of I call them trials, you could call them hearings or interrogations, and he's, Jesus is led before each one. <clears throat> he's basically accompanied by the religious leaders in every single one of these trials. And eventually these trials, of course, lead to his sentencing. To death. And when we study the trials of Jesus, just kind of a little, kind of big picture, uh, the harmony, we, in his study of harmony of the Gospels of all the trials, there's actually, it seems that there are different, about six different trials or hearings that Jesus has, uh, six tri- before different individuals as well as groups. Uh, one could also describe in terms of two trials. Two kinds of trials with three different phases. So, however you want to count it, uh, we'll call them trials and we'll call them two trials with three phases each. But following his arrest, Jesus undergoes and basically what we might call the ecclesiastical trials. It's before the Jewish religious leaders, and during the, 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 those ecclesiastical trials, he appears to be, first of all before Annas, the former high priest. He was removed and replaced with Caiaphas, one of his relatives, who was the current high priest. And so he's evaluated by Annas. Then he's sent to Caiaphas next, and who, along with the Sanhedrin, or at least some of the Sanhedrin. And then in the early morning, which is our, begins our text this morning, today, Jesus then finally appears before the last, uh, the, the, all of the Sanhedrin gathered together. Um, following that, he is delivered over to the Roman governor, Pilate, where he experiences what we might call the, his civil trials. Civil trials, and they have three phases as well. Uh, he first appears before Pilate, uh, the Roman governor. Then he appears, he's sent off to Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, you could just simply call him the the, uh, the governor, of, of essentially the governor of Galilee. Um, and then he's sent back, to, sent back to Pilate for a third and final time where eventually Pilate uh, condemns him to crucifixion. So six trials, two trials, two types of trials, three phases each, and that's, uh, that's what we find in the Gospels when we compare them all, all together. But Luke records for us uh, simply the last four of these trials, the last four, the, the final Jewish uh, religious trial, and then the three, uh, the three, um, uh, several trials. And we're going to look at the first of those, the, of those four, we're going to look at the first three this morning. And so as an outline for us, it's simply a pretty basic outline, uh, three trials before the rulers of Israel that condemned Jesus to the cross. And although the outline is pretty basic, I hope you'll see you'll I'm going to make, bring out the application and encouragement, some of the the gentle admonishment that we learn from the, the the negative examples of these religious rulers. Okay, all right. So first of all, uh, Jesus uh, is brought to, uh, before a trial before the Sanhedrin, and that is in chapter 22, uh, verse 66 through 71. And I'll just read, let's, we'll read this text as we go along here. Luke 22, 66-71. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, and yeah, I'll stop right there. This verse gives us the background a little bit, so I want to get a background. It was now daytime. It says daytime, so it's probably around six a.m. Uh, Jesus now led before the council of elders, and uh, this is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, of course, is uh, in fact the council chamber. The word later on, the council chamber, is the word Sanhedrin. It sometimes refers to the body, refers also to the place where they met. Uh, all of them are assembled. And this is now the morning, all the chief priests. Free- and it, the Sanhedrin was composed of the chief priests, the scribes, basically uh, 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 different religious leaders and other elders. Uh, these, basically, these two groups represented even the, the two uh, spectrums of the religious kind um, of, uh, the religious spectrum of Judaism. There's the Sadducees represented here, the Pharisees also represented it. And so altogether, this was every Jewish, the religious leader, authoritative authoritative religious uh, body, uh, judging Jesus. But they weren't just authoritative in religious matters. The Sanhedrin was also authoritative over legal and government matters, as long as it didn't basically overstep the local Roman governor, which is Pilate. And so throughout the night, uh, if we kind of look at the other Gospels, we would find that Jesus had been interrogated by Annas and Caiaphas. And remember, this is where Peter is in that process. He's in the courtyard. Uh, Jesus at that time being kind of, probably being, Annas seemed to live in the same compound. And so uh, Peter's just waiting there while uh, Jesus has to go to Annas and then goes to Caiaphas. And they had all tried to, in those trials, they had tried to find some, basically something to accuse or to find Jesus guilty of right uh, they know they want to kill him but they had to find legal means to kill him and they wanted to follow the law as they murder him um, but there was none to be found remember they they got witnesses to come and they got people to come and say to give false testimony and and uh, but yet all the testimony according to uh according to mark uh, they 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 couldn't find anyone who would give consistent testimony they contradicted one another but then, according to Mark, in a breakthrough moment, Caiaphas basically comes up to do, Caius, the high priest, says directly asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? This is Mark 14, 61. To which then Jesus answers, I am, I am. Jesus had directly revealed to the high priest, the, the, the head of the, the governing body of, Judea, of Jewish, and go, uh, the Jewish nation and the, and the Jewish faith, that he was the Christ, that he was the son of the blessed one, that is the son of God. Imagine, he, he, this is whom they were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah the whole time. And he says, I am the, I am the Christ. I am the son of God. And instead of, immediately repenting of what they had done, immediately releasing Jesus and worshiping and bowing down to him, the high priest instead condemns Jesus. He, he, this is where you, you see the, some of the scriptures, uh, gospel. he tore his robes. He said, well, oh, what more evidence do we need? He's blaspheming, let's kill him. He's already, and blasphemy was uh, punishable by death, at least according to the law. But, the council in those days, uh, according to the, the Jewish Mishnah, there were certain ch- rules that they had to follow. And, and there was one rule that required them to, to basically meet one more time in the morning. Over a two-day period, basically, the trial had to take place. And to give legitimacy to their decision. So then, in our text, we find that the second gathering of the Sanhedrin, the second gathering of all this, the full, the full council had convened in this morning for basically a, uh, basically just a sentencing and to proceed to ask. And so in the sentence, they want to confirm again, finally, what he said was true. Basically the second time. Maybe giving him opportunity to recant or if, if possible. So they ask him the same question. This is what we find in verse 67. Look at verse 67. They say, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they so they basically ask Jesus the same question, right? They, they want him to basically say, it's kind of like a uh, are you the Christ then? I want to confirm now, last chance. Are you the Christ? Are you the messianic king? Now, of course, they aren't asking because they want to bow the knee to him, right? They're not asking because, oh, if you are, we're, we're sorry, we, we've troubled you. Uh, we want to worship you right now. Let's let's uh, let's Let's set you as king. Rather, you know, we understand, especially as we recite the Gospels, they are looking for a reason to have him killed. The Jewish leaders, of course, did not have uh, the authority to execute anyone. Only the Roman governor did. And Pilate, of course, would not care about their religious disputes, if he's blaspheming or not. They don't care about the kind of... He doesn't care about that stuff. So they ask a question, this question, particularly in order to drum up a, a political charge that would hold against him, a charge that he would claim to be Christ a king. In their minds, of course, in most Jewish people's minds, the Christ would be a political king. He would become a king who would come to deliver Israel, not spiritually, but physically from the oppression by Rome. And This king would be one who would be hailed and he would, he would fight he would destroy all their enemies. That's who they were thinking about and they were hoping, they were looking for this political Christ who would come and defeat Rome and deliver them from the oppression. In their minds, the Christ, as a political king, would be one who would overthrow him, so therefore it would be a threat to Caesar. And so they want him to confess it one more time so they could use this charge, and we'll see later that they do use that charge. But Jesus doesn't answer the question immediately as he did before, the night previous. He, instead, his answer reveals, instead, in Jesus' genius way, he reveals their motives again. He reveals that you guys are not asking this because you really want to know that I'm the Christ. You're really asking this question because you want to kill me. He, tells, he just simply straight tells her, you won't believe me even if I tell you. He reveals their hearts. And what's more, he says, even if he asks a question of them, and many times Jesus would ask questions to get them to arrive at the truth. You remember uh, when he asked the question about who's, where did John the Baptist authority come from? Remember that one? Did they give an answer? No, they didn't. They gave no answer. And so he knew that they wouldn't give the answer if he asked one of those kind of questions again. So then Jesus answers in verse 69 with, with God's very own words. Quoting Psalm 110 verse 1, Jesus basically reveals that from now on the Son of Man, and he, that's a term that he used as, uh, uses of himself throughout his ministry, the Son of Man being that prophetic uh, Davidic, uh, Dan, uh, not Davidic, Davidic, uh, Danielic uh, term uh, from the prophet of Daniel, the one son of man who would receive authority before the ancient of days, this coming king who would be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The Psalm One Ten was a messianic psalm. It was clear from that. And this, and Jesus, and when he's saying that, from now on, I'm gonna the son of man that's myself is gonna be seated at the right hand of the power of God, right hand of God in heaven. He's basically alluding to the fact that he's gonna die, and he's gonna be raised, and he's gonna ascend to heaven. That's what he's saying by this. He's implying that where he will be not just one of the, like, the angels in heaven, not just like one of the worshipers in heaven, but he will rule from heaven. He will be at the right hand of God. That's the seat of authority. It's the closest position to God the Father himself. He will rule from a position of divine authority. That's what Psalm 110 is saying. You, you, if you recall as well, uh, back in Luke chapter 20, verse 41 to 44, it was back then that Jesus had actually challenged the religious leaders regarding the Christ's deity from this very same verse. Remember when he says the Lord's, he said, this is the very verse that begins, the Lord said to my Lord. So how can David, who is, you know, the father of, the, the, the father of this uh, Messiah, how can he call him Lord? Well, the fact is that that, because that, that Messiah would be the son of God, that's why he would be called Lord. And the religious leaders, even though Jesus quotes this and maybe we in our day might not get it exactly why that's significant, but the religious leaders completely get it. They understand exactly what he's implying. And that's their follow-up question. Because he says, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they, a- they ask the follow-up question, verse 70, and we'll read 70 71. And they all said, are you the son of God then? See, they get it. He didn't say, I'm the son of God. But he said, I'm the son of man who was seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. They directly ask him if he is the son of God. They're basically connecting all the dots. The Christ is the son of man, is the son of God. They are one and the same. And he answers "Are you, the, if you to the question, Yes, I am. Literally, though, Jesus says, You say that I am. And it conveys, basically, this idea. It's, it's not that he's denying it, but it conveys this idea that, that he's saying, You've rightly said so. You've rightly spoken. It's the, that's what it means. You say that I am. It's, it's obvious. And it's obvious that the religious leaders understand it this way, because look at the response. They don't say, Well, come on, be more direct, Jesus. No, they say, what further need do we have? This guy is, is confessing. He, is the, he says he's the son of God. This is blasphemy. He says he the, he's, the, he's the king. This is messiah. He's not that at all. He's blaspheming. He claims to be the Christ, the son of man, and the son of God. And we've heard, our, we've heard it from his mouth. We rest our case. We don't need to ask him any more questions. We can now take him to Pilate so that he can be killed. It's sad here that though Jesus had revealed the truth to them, to these religious leaders, instead of receiving him, they continued to reject him. They were not truly looking to judge Jesus fairly. This was no fair trial. This was an unjust trial by far. Rather, they judged him with a desire to rid themselves of him. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They came to Jesus, evaluating Jesus with already a, this the preconceived, uh, pre, uh, this preconceived desire to get rid of Jesus they had already thought of him as a false prophet false teacher he was a a heretic he was a threat to them they wanted to kill him and it's so ironic that here they sit in judgment of him but Jesus reveals that he will soon be seated in judgment of them and their example serves as a as again as a gentle admonishment and warning for us today for people today Many people judge or evaluate Jesus looking for a reason, really from a, from a standpoint, from looking for a reason to reject him. They're really not having an open mind. In fact, all of our minds are closed apart from the work of God, really, because this, the God of this world is, is blinding our, 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 our thoughts. But many people looked for a reason to reject Jesus when when they start hearing about Jesus. In their hearts, people love their sin, their way of life, their autonomy, their authority, their own individuality more than they love having Jesus Christ. They know, nobody wants to admit that they're a sinner, that, they're, that they need to submit to someone who died for their sin. Because if you believe that he died for your sin, then you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner and someone died for you, then there's something that requires of us to live for him. There's some response that we should do for, them, for that who, he who died for us. You see, people don't walk away from believing in Jesus because of some intellectual challenge to their faith. We may present it that way. But people generally walk away because of a sin or desire that they don't want to let go. If you don't believe that, you haven't lived long enough. All of us who have experienced sin, who wrestled with sin in this life, there are sometimes this choice in life that you make. You say, I love this sin so much. And you want to follow that sin instead of Jesus. But Jesus makes it hard. He makes it hard because he's well. He's like a, always uh, there, convicting us. we showing us the way, and many people have believers and unbelievers have fallen away, because, turned away from Jesus because they and they their sin, they love their sin more than they and and more than they love Jesus. They don't want to let it go. They want to they reject Jesus. And those who belong to Him will eventually return. By the way, they that's they Jesus will not lose a single one. This is reflected even in Romans 1.18, just people, how people, Paul, Paul recognized that people reject Jesus because of their sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who basically suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We want to suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, in our sin, both the sin nature but also our sin de- sinful deeds. We love our sin more than the truth. Don't suppress the truth. This is a, a like these religious leaders who heard it directly from Jesus' mouth. And yet, because they love their, their sin, they love their authority, they love their, they, they their position, they don't want to submit themselves to Jesus, this Messiah, this, this Galilean, this carpenter. Instead of submitting to the truth of Jesus, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. That's the first trial. We move on to the second trial. Jesus now is led away and brought before Pilate, Pilate. In chapter twenty-three, verse one to seven, we read in verse one and two, chapter twenty-three. Then the whole body of them got up, so the whole Sanhedrin got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, "We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king." Note that you'll note that these throughout these trials, the religious leaders are present throughout. They're, they're there at every single stage. They're never absent. You think this is Pilate's domain, they would just say, well, okay, now you take care, now you try to figure out the facts and tell us if it's true or not. Instead, they are there act, almost acting like they're prosecutors. So they want to be the ones who prosecute Jesus, make sure that he is actually prosecuted for, and, and put to death. And so they're leading Jesus from one trial to the next. In their minds, of course, they had already determined that he was guilty of blasphemy, worthy of death, however being under Roman rule they couldn't kill him so they had to then convince Pilate the Roman governor to put someone to death so they brought him to Pilate to the, the Roman governor of Judea and they, they bring him and then they begin, this would begin Jesus' civil trial and the, before all these political leaders and so they lay out their charge against him notice it's not the same <laughs> it's not the same charge that they found he's, Pilate he's guilty of blasphemy that's that's not why blasphemy is why they want to put him to death. But for them, they say his promise, he's a he's a rebel. He's committing, he's a he's a seditionist. So instead of presenting Jesus blasphemy, they present a threefold charge of political rebellion. Number one, he's misleading the nation. He's disturbing the peace, if you will. Number two, he's teaching the nation to not pay taxes to Caesar. Tax evasion. Oh, you get arrested, you go to prison for that kind of stuff. And number three, the worst of all, he claims to be. The Christ, basically, in, in whether Pilate knows what that means or not, uh, it's a Hebrew term, comes from a Hebrew uh, ideal, anointed, they explain the Christ, a king. He's claiming to be a king, a replacement of Caesar. Their charges, this threefold charge, basically saying that <clears throat> Jesus is guilty of treason and therefore treason was punishable by death. Jesus is po- delivered over as a political king who would threaten Roman's empire? That's the charge that they bring to, before Pilate. And how ironic, it's really ironic, and again, it's full of irony in, in the whole tri- all these trials that Jesus or that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah because he was not the political king that they were looking for, right? If he had came in that kind of way, they would have recept- received him. He would have came in power, the kind of thing that they were looking for. but, now, but instead he came as a, to spiritual. In a spiritual, as a spiritual king to save us from sin. Now they have delivered him into the hands of Pilate, accusing him of being such a political king, the one that they rejected him for, that he wasn't. Of course, Jesus did not come to be a political king. He came to be the king of kings, king over all kings, the king over all nations, the king over every soul who would come and deliver Israel not from Rome, but deliver Israel from her sin and deliver us from our sin. And so Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus in verse 3. The Romans have their own set of of, uh, interrogational rules and laws, and so he tries to follow them. Verse 3 and 4, we pick up where Pilate's interrogation and trial of Jesus. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, said, and said, "It is as you say." Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, and the crowds "I find no guilt in this man." Interestingly, he, he basically uh, takes uh, the the point that knows that is the most serious charge that they bring, that, he is, that Jesus is a is a. Uh, another king that can depose of, of, the, of the Jews that would replace Caesar. And he asks him directly, are, are you the king of the Jews? And interestingly, in the Greek, there's emphasis. It begins actually with the word you. Uh, that, so that's, it's not it's an unusual place. So he says, really, you are the king of the Jews? Is what he's saying. And that's how we would probably say it. It's almost like he's incredulous. Why? Because remember, Jesus has been, he's been arrested. He's been beaten, blindfolded. He's probably been slapped. He's been spit upon at this time. He's been, uh, he's been treated poorly. And now he appears to... Him. So, you know, Pilate's looking at this man, this, this beaten, this bruised man. This, you know, he's, he's nothing impressive. He's not wearing any regal clothing whatsoever. And he's looking at you, are the king of the Jews? He probably expects Jesus to say, no, I'm not. Right? Because if you're innocent, no, no, I'm not. I'm not the king. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not guilty of sedition, treason. But instead, Jesus says, you yourself say, yes, I am. He says it, again, it is as you say, you yourself said it. And so answering, Jesus was indicating that, yes, he is the king of the Jews, because that isn't what he is, but he's not the kind of Jew, the king of the Jews that, that they're thinking of. He's not this political one that they're thinking of, that they're trying to portray him as. Jesus instead is a king... But his kingdom, again, is is not of this world, right? His kingdom is in heaven. It's it's a kingdom of God. His answer is enough, and it doesn't say much more what what Pilate asked him. Maybe there's other questions. But in the end, verse 4, Pilate makes his verdict. He makes it pretty quick. He says, I find no guilt in this man. This is no king of the Jews. There's no way this man is the king of the Jews. He's no threat to us. He declares Jesus innocent or not guilty. Pilate was no fool. He's a Roman politician, by the way, if you remember. And so he knew that this was probably a, a religious squabbling. This is something that between the Jews, and they probably just get rid of this guy. He knows that he's the only one who has the power to kill. So he knows what they're trying to do. He doesn't want to do them a favor and kill some innocent man just because, of their, just because they, they have their squabble with him. And what's more, he knows that this man's innocent. Two other times in, in this chapter, verse 14, verse 22, Pilate is going to declare Jesus an innocent man. And Pilate had the authority at this point to declare Jesus not guilty. He could have ended the trial and just kind of chased them all away and tell the soldiers, get these guys out of my face. There's no reason for judgment, but, but the Jewish leaders persist. And we see it in verse 5 to 7. Look how they respond. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Don't you know? There's a plan that this man's dangerous. His influence is wide. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. The Jewish leaders persisted, see and emphasized that Jesus is a danger to Rome. He's not just a danger in Judea, but he had already been a danger in Galilee as well. And he's now just moving to Jerusalem. Can't you see he's coming closer to the capital of Israel? Don't you see what's going to happen? You know this is Passover. This is the most politically charged time of the year. Almost all many of the religious uh, pro- uh, rebellions took place around the Passover. This is the threat. This is a real threat they're trying to imply to him. And so Pilate is put in a, in a political kind of jam. Would he put his reputation and security on the line for someone he knows to be an innocent man, much less a Jewish man, not even a citizen of Rome? Or would he bow to the political pressure and get rid of this man? And so to quell the the uproar of the Jewish leaders. If, tr- if more trouble did happen, you know he, he's sure that these Jewish leaders are going to publicize it. You will. We, we brought this man before Pilate, but he, he didn't find to do anything about him. And Pilate would be, have his career threatened. So while Pilate found Jesus to be innocent, he really didn't want to be bothered with Jesus. Pilate basically ended up judging Jesus with a desire to not be bothered with him. He makes a choice. said, I'm not going to bother with this. And he finds a way out to basically pass the buck. He said, oh, this is too much trouble. I'm going to pass it off. He, and he heard the, the word Galilee mentioned. So he said, oh, are you a Galilean? And finding out that he was a Galilean, he knows that Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee was in Jerusalem, probably for the Passover. And so he, he sends then Jesus to Herod. He passes off. He doesn't want to be bothered with him. He doesn't want to be troubled. He has his hands clean. And though Pilate found Jesus in every instant, he, he really, he's, he is an example to us of those who basically don't want to be troubled with Jesus. Many people will look at the world, look, look at Jesus, and they'll, they may acknowledge some truths about Jesus. Oh, Jesus, yes, he was a man. Yes, uh, yes, I believe that, yeah, it seems like he did die on the cross. Um, and yes, some people say he rose from the dead. But still, they will, in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives, they don't want him to do any, have anything to do with Jesus. They don't want to be bothered with him. They don't want to have to, because if he died for us, and then, you know, you think about what that means, well, he must have died for something. What is he, died for my sin? No, I'm not a sinner. I don't want to change my life. See, to acknowledge say, the things, you can, you can know a little about him, but then eventually you have, to, you have to, you have to think about the repercussions of it. But most people don't want to be bothered with the repercussions of it. I preached at a funeral recently. Preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to a a group mostly of unbelievers. I told them about death is coming and judgment soon after. As far as I could tell, the people heard that. Maybe they might have acknowledged what I said. Mm. But they couldn't be bothered with it as far as I could tell. I'm praying that they would be bothered with it. Praying that they would know that death is coming soon. But God made a way and God sent his son to die for their sins so that they, when they stand before Jesus, God in judgment, that they will have an answer. Make no mistake, to not receive Jesus is to reject him also. But let me add just a further kind of admonish, gentle admonishment for those of us who are Christians, those who profess faith in Christ, those who say knowledge the truths of Jesus, but yet in our lives, our day-to-day lives, we, we, aren't bo- we can't be bothered to live for Christ. We can't, bother, can't be bothered to serve Christ. We can't be bothered to follow Christ. They live their lives, basically looking out for themselves. They, they know they have forgiveness of sins and eternal life because they believe in Jesus. But in practice, they seek their kingdom. They seek their own life. They seek their own pleasures. They seek their own desires instead of the kingdom of God. And such people, I would say, ought to be warned that you may not be genuinely saved. You may not be. Luke 14, 26, 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are strong words from Jesus. Let's count the cost. We must be bothered by Jesus. We can't be those who, who don't want to be bothered by him. Let's learn, we learn from that's what we learned from Pilate. Lastly, thirdly, Jesus his third trial is before Herod. He's led before King Herod, if you will. Herod the Herod, this is Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Verse 8 and 9, we see this transition. Now we read, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Oh, someone who wants to see Jesus. Good news. Let's see. For he had wanted to see him for a long time. Oh, this is neat. He's going to, maybe someone, this is a, this is a great potential because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. What we find here is that Herod Antipas was actually someone who was eager to see Jesus. He'd been wanting to see Jesus for the whole time. He'd already want, said that. We'd seen that earlier in Luke. And he was so happy. In fact, it was the, Luke puts the strength. He was very happy. So he was ecstatic, it seems like. It was like something, it was like being, he was like a he was like a fanboy or something like that. He really wanted to, to see this Jesus. He heard about Jesus, wanted to see him, and he thought, oh yeah, I'm all big about Jesus. And he was happy, but notice he was happy to see Jesus, not because he wanted to hear Jesus teach about the kingdom. Rather, he wanted to see Jesus basically perform some sign, basically perform a miracle. He said, he said, oh, Jesus is like the circus. I want to see could Jesus come and do something, just come and do something neat. Like heal the dead, you know, you know uh, raise, someone from the, uh, raise someone from the dead, cure their disease, cast out some demons. Yeah, that's what I want to see. I mean, well, let's all admit it, that would be pretty fascinating. We did see that ourselves. There's a natural desire to see those kind of things. It's very intriguing. It's very interesting to us. It's fascinating. And Sarah the Antipas was fascinated and amused by Jesus. And we see in this trial that Luke tells us uh, that Herod continues at some length basically to interrogate Jesus, to question Jesus. Maybe he's just asking him questions about him, et cetera, like that. But despite what he asks of Jesus, though he questions him at some length, verse 9 tells us that Jesus answered him nothing. Jesus basically doesn't open his mouth. Despite his request, probably to perform a miracle, this request to, to, for Jesus to say some, answer his questions. We don't know exactly why, but Jesus doesn't answer. Perhaps it's simply that Jesus had already said what needed to be said He is the Christ, He is the Son of Man, He is the Son of God. He's told it to the highest levels of Religious authority in the nation. He's told it to the highest political authority in the area region and They have not responded What else is there to say it didn't change the response of the the leaders. They had already made up their minds What's more what would if he did perform a miracle like a sign and wonder what more would? That, how else would that change these religious leaders? When he consider that throughout his life, three-year ministry, he performed countless, hundreds of miracles of healings and casting out exorcisms, of race, even raising people from the dead, multiplying food, providing water, uh, into, making water into wine. One more miracle would not convince a single soul, one of these souls. As for Herod we also recall that he would not be he would be he would be in that group because he was the one who had eventually had John the Baptist arrested and beheaded. You recall that? And if he killed the forerunner of the Christ, how likely might he want eventually turn around and kill the Christ as well? But Jesus doesn't give Herod what he's seeking. He doesn't give him the signs and wonders that he looks for. Luke doesn't say so here, but according to Peter, no, according sorry, according to Pilate Later on in verse 15, Herod also finds Jesus innocent. He also doesn't find that there's any guilt in Jesus as well. And the religious leaders respond again as they had with Pilate. Again, they, they accuse Jesus vehemently. They, they persist. No, I don't, you know Herod might have said, well, I find nothing wrong. Yeah, he doesn't answer me. Ah, mm, I'm done with him. I find no guilt in him and then sends him off. But the religious leaders start vehemently proposing that, no, no, you don't know he's a rebel he's, he's a treason he's sedition you too and they maybe perhaps uh, imply this very same threat that so you too will be guilty if you don't do anything about Jesus. But since Jesus doesn't give Herod what he's looking for he treats Jesus with contempt instead. Right? He responds with contempt before sending him back. Verse 11 and 12 look at how he treats Jesus because Jesus doesn't give him what he wants, look at what he does. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another in that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. They mock him as king. They dress him in a beautiful robe, a gorgeous robe, it says, and they send him back to Pilate. Herod had basically judged Jesus with a desire to be Amused by him. He wanted to be amused by Jesus, but entertained, to be intrigued by Jesus. But when Jesus did not provide the desired entertainment, Herod treated Jesus with contempt, with scorn and mockery. Along he was he and with his soldiers. It wasn't just his soldiers, he was involved in the, in the mockery as well. And Herod's again is an example to us, a warning to us is those who see Jesus as someone simply to be amused by someone to be entertained by, someone to kind of just it, just, it just intrigues me, to be intrigued by. And certainly Jesus is intriguing. And he is an interesting character. Even from a, from a secular standpoint, he would be that. I'm sure we can find a, a secular discovery channel kind of a, a documentary upon the life of Jesus. But those who look for Jesus as someone to be amused by. And don't find it. will turn from Jesus. It's easy. Many people check out Jesus or look to Jesus because they're interested in, they think they're interested in religion. And some will come to church because they're looking for, to, be, to be amused by the activities of church, to be involved in some kind of community uh, you know, activities, like to be, go, go feed the hungry and, and go uh, do, be supportive of these kind of activities that ch- they think churches are about. Some follow Jesus because it's simply the latest fad or trend we kind of think of generationally. There have been certain generations where people all, as a movement, began to follow Jesus. So it was a trend. Some kind of church because they, they want churches because they want that emotional charge that oh, I need that something you know that, that oh just that experience that maybe that that uh, whether charismatic or just simply that oh that that with well, that convicting truth I'm like i, would, I would just kind of use it to meditate on this past week we kind of look for these things we, there's a sense of looking for to be intrigued to be entertained to be challenged to be stimulated to be amused but when it gets boring. When no longer Jesus provides that amusement or entertainment, then we move on. We say, I'm going to look for something else. I'm going to look for something else that can provide that. They find the next thing to be interested in. They find the next thing to be amused by. They find the next thing to be stimulated by. Those who look to Jesus to be amused or entertained or awed are like the rocky soil of Jesus' parable back in Luke 8. Remember that? Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. They don't really believe. They they might outwardly respond, but they, when when uh, when trials come, it reveals them for who they are. We'll want to learn from here and not be one who looks to Jesus as someone to be amused or entertained, or or just as a as a hobby, or or, or just something that we that we busy our lives with. We have to look to Jesus to worship, to love, to serve, because he is our savior from sin. Well, these are the three trials of Jesus. And as we observe Jesus' trials before the rulers of Israel, we see that they each evaluate Jesus according to their own aims and desires. The Jewish leaders looked at Jesus as one to be rid of. Pilate saw Jesus as one not to be bothered with. Herod saw Jesus as one to be amused by. And so although Jesus made clear that he was the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, they all rejected him. And they all condemned him to the cross. And yet through it all, Jesus, beyond acknowledging who he was, said nothing in his defense. He was silent. He did not declare his innocence. He did not demand justice. But the innocent one willingly endured the series of unjust trials silently for he knew the cross was the Father's will. Yet not my will, but thine be done, he said. He prayed. He is the Christ, the King who came to save His people. and he came to be oppressed and afflicted. He came to be the Lamb of God. He came to be cut off from the land of living for the transgression of his people. And I, I leave you with one just kind of kind of challenging thought and question set of questions. If you were to be in the place of those religious leaders, these rulers, and ask, and you were the beginning to be given to be judged, sit in judgment of Jesus, and we will never be that, but, and if you were to ask Jesus the, the same question they asked, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? To which, of course, he would reply, you say that I am. And if you heard those words of Jesus, how would you respond? How do you respond when you hear Jesus say, you say that I am the Christ? the Son of God. Would you look to be rid of Him so you can keep living your life your way? Would you look not to be bothered with Him as something not worth the trouble? Would you be look to be amused by Him until something better comes along? Or would you look him to Him to save you? And would you then bow your knee and hail Him as King, Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, would you confess that he is Lord and worship him and serve him and live for him and love him for the rest of your days? How would you respond? Let us respond with the final song.